Hello, you're listening to Late Edition Crimey Chronicles, a product of Lee Enterprises. I'm Chris Lay, the podcast operations manager here at Lee and the host of the show. Now, with Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles, we are presenting notable true crime stories as reported by journalists for the dozens of various Lee Enterprises-owned publications from around America. And for this set of episodes, we are traveling to Wilbur, Nebraska, where in November of 2017, 24-year-old Sydney Loof left work to go on a second date with a person she met on a dating app and never came home. What you're about to hear is a bonus episode. We'll have the final episode, episode four, next week. But for now, bonus episode. It's going to be an interview that I did with Lori Pilger, who's a journalist at the Lincoln Journal Star. We talked about what it was like to cover the trial, the missing persons case, and field phone calls from Aubrey Trail. It was really insightful and shed a lot of light on the, the process and just what it's like to be in a newsroom. As always, if you appreciate what we're doing with this program or any other true crime podcast for that matter, we encourage you to invest in local journalism and support whichever newspaper it is that serves your community. Again, we'll be back next week with the fourth and final installment. This bonus episode begins after a short break. Lori Pilger? That's right. You've been a journalist at the Lincoln Journal for how long? Um, Since 2005. I worked at my hometown paper in Norfolk, Nebraska, so for um, eight years up until that time. And have you always been covering courts and crime? Um, The Norfolk Daily News was a smaller paper, so I kind of wore more hats there. But yes, I focused primarily on the police and court beat. Did you cover any other stuff that had garnered that level of national intrigue or the circus nature of everything about it? It was certainly the the most dramatic kind of case to come before me to this point. In Norfolk, when I was working there, there was a, a killing at the U.S. bank where three guys came went into a bank and killed five people, and, and that got national attention, but not to the same degree over the same period of time as this one just kind of unraveled and wound, and there were twists and turns, whereas that one seemed a bit more straightforward, um, terribly tragic in its own way, but but not quite like this one. One of the things that just keeps jumping out at me, and I'm even going through the story multiple times, I'm continuously astonished at the way that Aubrey Trail specifically incorporated the media into kind of shaping to what end, I don't honestly know, you know, the narrative around him and, and Bailey Boswell and everything that that went on with that what was what was that like from from your end having to navigate the you know random phone calls that you get from him and you know handling how to package that that information in a way that wouldn't bend too far from you know salacious into newsworthy and because it's a little bit of both and you gotta mm-hmm. maintain a an appropriate tone in dealing with it Sure. I mean when we when we would get calls from Aubrey Trail, we always had to wonder, you know, what does he hope to gain from telling us this? Um, he told a lot of stories. Um, I I'd said before, I trust the guy as far as I could throw him. And he's not <laughs> a small guy, but, um, you know, he's a con man. You And you just know it uh, from the get-go. So then you have to take everything in from that perspective of why is he telling us this? I know we had law enforcement telling cautioning us that he was probably 
trying to send messages of some kind to Bailey to let let her know what he was saying to police. And that was, you know, we don't want to be played. We don't want to give uh, be a mouthpiece for someone to circumvent the justice system. So we wanted to be cautious about, and, th and there were times that we had interviews with them, talked to him on the phone, and then found out that he was completely feeding us a line. You know, he was talking about how they'd found more bodies and you know, we would go on these wild goose chases. There was one in particular where we're calling law enforcement saying, well, he's saying that he took you to other bodies, you know, and it was all just made up. <laughs> so you never, you always had to be really cautious. And we tried to talk things through before we'd even put it in a story, because while everybody's interested in, in what he's talking about, we don't want to be promoting a false narrative or, you know, his story evolved all over the place. The only thing that stayed uh, the same was that Bailey wasn't involved. So he was clearly trying to protect her. And I mean, there's multiple articles that, you know, start <laughs> with, you know, he said this on this day, and then he said this on, you know, that month. And then he said this to us, but he said this to the cops and, uh, and everything in court definitely seems like it was all over the place. And yeah, I noted uh, when he was talking about two years ago, you know, uh, I guess at the time in, you know, 2018, when he was talking to, to law enforcement and pretrial and all that stuff, the talking about giving up open cases in two years previously and telling them where bodies were. And it just, yeah, none of that seems to have materialized. Even when he was talking with the, the fraud case with the, the gold coins that he had defrauded that Kansas family out of, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, you know, he was talking in, in that trial about how the Louf case and that case are going to end up being connected and how Sidney Louf had been involved with them. And it just, it's all, it's just, it's hogwash. I mean, it's, right. <laughs> yeah. Did you get a sense of any larger goal that he was trying to do? Cause I'm, I'm just having a really difficult time piecing this together into some, like how, how any of this could have benefited him or, sure. or Bailey for that matter. I got the sense that, that, the story evolved as he got reports and from his defense attorney, like maybe there would be, he would keep tiny threads of the truth and then he would build on it and create some elaborate story using one bit of, you know, the fact that they didn't find her organs. Well, that could, could be explained by the terrible, gruesome way that the body was disposed of and animals, unfortunately, like being left out there. I mean, there could have been plausible reasons. And then he started, he said that he made up stories about what he did with them and drinking her blood and, and draining the body. And, and it, it's just like, you wonder, you, you really are left not to know how much of it is truth, how much of it is just a fabrication based on other information that was out there that he was getting. Have there been any other examples in your professional uh, experience where someone has just seemingly not even really like played the court system, but taken advantage of how like it just didn't seem like like the court was prepared for him in you know to to be capable of holding him to account in any way given the the antics that that he did. Is there anything that that feels similar that you've experienced or I? He was a whole different level. Um, I think his defense attorney put it the best um, at the appeal hearing the other day. 
uh, Ben Murray said that that we all kind of expected something to happen at trial. He he was someone known for grand gestures and like making scenes, and so everybody was waiting to see in what way he would act out or do something. And so the that's like when the throat slashing came. I mean, nobody really anticipated that. I mean, how can you? And I mean, like you wrote in the in the story uh, from this past Thursday with the the Supreme Court appeal for a mistrial. How do you how do you unsee that? How, how, how does that not taint a jury? And yeah, it's it's difficult to to imagine that. But it's also I certainly don't want <laughs> any kind of larger precedent of if you attempt suicide in court, then it's an automatic mistrial. <laughs> that doesn't. Right. That does sound like exactly what the Supreme Court justices are dealing with right now. I mean, I think everybody agrees seeing something so shocking in court is unusual in such a way that how do you, as a juror, set that aside and act as if it didn't exist or it didn't happen? Because it did, and you saw it. <laughs> One of the things that has jumped out at me in kind of going over this story and you know really discovering it for the first time is that the way that the police and the courts handled everything where it took almost a year it seems to have actually charged them is that at all maybe not normal but I mean, were they just trying to build a case against them during that time or i'm you know th there's a lot of like dead spaces in the timeline of the coverage of this because you get these little bursts of activity but when bailey boswell and aubrey trail were in jail in kansas for the the fraud case their antiques dealings you know he's basically saying like why haven't they charged us we all know why i'm here was there any larger idea of why they they were taking so long to be charged for for that crime it did seem unusual i guess that um, to me that federal case the federal fraud case took the pressure off prosecutors to because they weren't going anywhere they knew where they were uh, they were locked up they weren't going anywhere I think they maybe were hoping that Bailey Boswell would come to her senses and give the full story. She never cooperated with law enforcement. So I think maybe to some degree they were hoping for some kind of breakthrough that way, because when you get down to it, there likely were only the two of them there. Although Aubrey Trail has given different versions of saying other women were in the room when, when Sydney was killed, but we don't really know prosecutors don't really know exactly how how that played out and it would have been really helpful to have someone giving a narrative of exactly what happened when they got to Wilbur that night and that's another aspect of this where you have Aubrey Trail being the one who is I mean talkative to a an, an egregious degree or you know to a indefensible degree I guess mm -hmm. and Bailey Boswell on the other hand I think even was the uh judge in Kansas, I believe, was like, do you have anything that you want to say? And she's just like, no, ma'am. And that's that that was it. That was all that she, you know, said. So it's a really weird imbalance, I guess. And you know, the sad thing is just there, there is no no closure to it because you you have a certain list of things that you know and then you've got some things that you don't know. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff in between. That's where all it seems like the majority of the story is is in that sort of between. Right. Do you see any longer term effects that this trial has had in, I guess, the court system or the way that not just the newspaper that you work for, but any other 
print publications or media outlets, I guess, are going to be covering things of this nature where someone is trying to potentially play the the press? I mean, that's a good question. I, you know, it's, I know it can be seen as kind of a, a case study for how judges out there can try to maintain, you know, we were even dealing with COVID issues and, you know, only so many people could be in the courtroom, but, and then there's this huge interest. So it's kind of like balancing all of these um, interests and trying to get the information, letting people see inside courtrooms and to know what that process is like, and then balancing it with someone's right to a fair trial. And I think that it's being used as an example of some ways that we learned how to do it better, maybe, or, you know, by the time Bailey Boswell went to trial, there were certain issues at play there. They had to move the trial because of all the publicity and also the the panel of prospective jurors. I mean, Saline County is only so big, so, um, and everybody had heard <laughs> after the first trial pretty much every detail. So th there were some things that, from a court standpoint, you know, I think we're always, as journalists, going to be dealing with people. The Aubrey Trail was uh, certainly an anomaly. Uh, people aren't usually calling you up who are accused of terrible crimes and and just telling you every story. You know, you almost have to hang up on him at some point, you know, like, but uh, so it, it was definitely a, a unique experience. And I'm sure that it takes a toll on you where you're having to interact with someone who Clearly, I mean, you have to, you know, maintain, you know, innocent until proven guilty. But I mean, if someone is all but confessing to you that they committed the crime before they're even charged with it, technically, it's and you're having to interact with that person and know that that's part of your job while also interacting with the family and covering all of that. I mean, it's it's a it's a lot of balls to, to keep in the air. It certainly is a unique position to be in. I still will get emails from Aubrey Trail on occasion. And one of his most recent was complaining about the death penalty in Nebraska and how it's broken. And that's something that we're aware of. Currently, we have no way of carrying out the death penalty, although it is on the books in Nebraska. But it's that interesting, like hearing him complain about it. You know, how much of a voice do you want to give him? At this point, too, I just, you know, half of the stuff that that he tells me or emails me about, it's like I don't do anything with it. But still, it's interesting just even getting an email from someone on death row. One of the things about this is with Aubrey Trail to varying degrees, but ultimately publicly taking so much of it on himself and absolving Bailey Boswell as much as he was legally able, uh, as well as you know, these other people who might or might not have been in the room, depending on what day it was that he was talking about it. Were there avenues that weren't explored because he, his taking all of that on was kind of closing that down? I know that they, they talked in court to two of the women that were possibly in, I mean, I, would, I mean, Coven, would that be uh, the, way, the way to describe it? I don't, you know, I mean, it was there, I'm assuming they maybe, well, I don't know the, uh, the responsibilities that they would have in coming forward with any of that and you know, possibly being held accountable for anything. But it just seems like there's a lot of loose ends that seems like, like we'll just never 
you're back on, but yeah, Aubrey Trail described it as a like he was the vampire and they were his witches. And I mean, it's certainly when the three women testified about you know what they saw and heard and the conversations that were taking place at that house in Wilbur and elsewhere. It certainly is like as bizarre as as you can imagine. And it does make you wonder why they, you know, especially when things started to come out about about them being accused of something, uh, accused of a woman's disappearance at first, being involved, you know, why, and we don't know, I know they, they were looking for one of the women who lives in Omaha, they were looking, police were looking for her because she was known to be around them after um, the disappearance, and to what extent she cooperated, it it didn't sound like she did much at first, but then she, she later was seen almost as one of the victims too, and, you know, who could have easily been someone they turned on and killed. So seems like this is also, you know, for this to have been the first time that something like this had happened. Um, and, you know, with the defense attorneys arguing that all of Ari Trail's criminal activity had been fraud and, you know, bouncing bad checks. And it seems like this was a little bit out of character, but it was accomplished with such a degree of, well, I mean, on the one hand, it seems very accomplished and, you know, thought out. And then on the other hand, obviously it is a colossal mess of being incapable at covering up any of this. And it it just seems like such a strange thing to be a one-off. Was it an escalation of something? Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, when you look at the details that that he didn't think of, like he paid in cash for all of this, you know, the hacksaws and things that he bought the day of, of the date when she uh, disappeared. It was like he bought it with cash and then he kept the receipts. You know, it kind of <laughs> it led law enforcement on this trail, thankfully, you know, to be able to to see this in court. Like otherwise, you know, uh, they probably never would have found that the security video where he's like. They knew they were able to track his phone and, and her phone, uh, Bailey's phone, to see kind of how they just followed her around that day, went buying for these things that clearly appear to be the kinds of things you would need to cut up a body and dispose of it. So, so there was some, certainly looks like there was planning, but then in other ways, just complete lack of it. <laughs> I mean, there are so many bits and pieces of this that are ridiculous, like the ones that you described, the fact that one of the you know headlines for an article was about the things that were found in the house. And it's like 56 Beanie Babies. I mean, it's there's just so many little things that are almost perfectly designed. I mean, it almost, you know, it's like an Onion article almost. It's, there's just it's there's this level of almost viral ridiculousness that's at play. And it's something that. For as much as Trail would have been playing the the media or using all of that, I mean, that's having 56 Beanie Babies. That's not something you can plan. That's not. <laughs> Certainly unusual. <laughs> yes, indeed. So what is the, I mean, they've both been sentenced as of now. Is Bailey attempting any, any appeals? All right. Well, there's, there's the automatic appeal process, right? Well, since she didn't get the death penalty, there isn't an automatic appeal for her, but she is appealing. So it's progressing too. There'll probably be oral arguments from the Supreme Court within the next six months or so. So, I mean, I guess there are all kinds of arguments about whether or not certain evidence should have gone before the jury that did hear her case and her 
defense attorneys are making those arguments now. And I mean, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but do you foresee this as being a complicated case for the, well, I mean, obviously anything that's going to make it to the state Supreme Court is going to be a, a complicated case, but to any bystander, it does look like this should have been a mistrial, but obviously there's a lot of other things at play where you don't want to set that as a precedent. You don't, there's going to have to be a lot of caveats if that's what they go with. The questions from the justices did seem to indicate that they have serious concerns about making this case a precedent-setting decision where other defendants are sent the message that do something spectacularly crazy in front of the jury so that if, if you feel like your case isn't going well. They certainly don't want that happening in Nebraska courtrooms. So, so then they're left with what the appropriate could the jury could have set this aside? They told the judge that they could, but that said, <laughs> right. Like, I know I'm not going to forget no. what I saw that day. Yeah. And then do you know what the timeline of that, the Supreme court uh, decision is going to be? They likely will rule within the next three months, I would say, or so. I mean, they aren't on a timeline exactly. So however long they need to do it, several weeks. Were there any other aspects of the case that I haven't touched on in this conversation or that might not have been as you know front and center in the reporting that were striking to you that are worth putting back out in the forefronting them more, I guess, and kind of putting a spotlight on them? You know, at the time, it was really fascinating to us in, in the courtroom to hear about how the Lincoln police investigator, Bob Hurley, had had used the phone information. It was kind of early on in that stage where people could track exactly where phones were based on the information that they got from cell phone providers. But without him tracking down where they left her remains, which was some 60 miles from Wilbur, I mean, it, it could have been, obviously it took them a while to find her remains to even know that she was dead. So that was kind of fascinating to hear about at trial, because I guess as a lay person, you kind of think that the police would be able to pretty quickly say where our phones were. But that was kind of new technology at the time. I think the the phone information that they got was because one of uh, Sydney's friends logged into Tinder, found Audrey, the you know sock puppet, whatever account that Bailey and Audrey, uh, the, the account that they had been using. And from there, like started texting. Right. We don't know to what degree Aubrey Trail may have been texting these people on Tinder. I mean, it could have been kind of his account and then she would be the one to meet up. It's a little bit unclear, although there were times that that um, Bailey definitely was the one texting because she was alone with her phone. But there were the friends were pretty critical in helping track down and have police looking for Bailey Boswell. So that they came forward as quickly and with such helpful information. Like one of them got a cell phone number, even if it wasn't a cell phone number that she used all the time, it still was able to help track them ultimately in Missouri. Yep. Well, I mean, thank you so much for taking the time and um, thank you for all the work that you, you do out there. And yeah, just really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. Just want to say thank you to Lori Pilger for taking the time to talk with us and share what it was like to be covering everything and 
You can find contact info for her and links to the articles we talked about in the show notes. Late Edition Crimey Chronicles is a product of Lee Enterprises. It is produced, recorded, edited, and hosted by myself, Chris Lay. Articles are read by Matt McGrath. As always, if you appreciate what we're doing with this program or any other true crime podcast for that matter, we encourage you to invest in local journalism and support whichever newspaper it is that serves your community.